Blog Talk Radio. I'm Phil Bowermaster, and this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of the Speculist weblog, and you can find us online at speculist.com, or if you want to go straight to the good stuff, blog.speculist.com. We'll get you right there. Um, As with the uh, website, the podcast is all about emerging technologies, emerging possibilities. It's all about looking forward to a future that we think we're all going to want to live to see. And with me, as always, is my co-host and co-blogger, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Excellent, man. Good, good. Well, we're uh, getting the year, uh, new year off right here, bringing back uh, an, a, 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 one of our best guests from 2007. So if you want to go ahead and introduce our guest. Absolutely. Well, we have with us tonight, Phil, Tobias Buckle, Buckal, excuse me, Tobias, uh, he has been on our show a couple of times in the past, uh, both uh, on the occasions of the publications of books. Uh, he's a sci-fi author, and uh, uh, Tobias, we are very pleased to have you back, and even even uh, while you're in the middle of a book, so <laughs> it's not even well, on the uh, occasion of a book. So I'm, I'm happy to be here, yeah, and uh, actually I just turned the third one in. I just turned in the copy edits to, to the publisher, so oh, well, i books. Hey, <laughs> we got an exclusive on that then, Phil. We. <laughs> and uh, what's the what, what's the title of the third book? Uh, the third book is uh, called Sly Mongoose. Okay, the first book, of course, was Crystal Rain. Mm-hmm. And uh, excuse me, I, uh, I'm having a mental block, uh, Tobias. What's the second book? Uh, second book is Ragamuffin. Ragamuffin, and now we have Sly Mongoose. And uh, of course, ra- the Ragamuffins and and Sly Mongoose were, were you know groups of people that were uh, introduced in the in the first book. Correct? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. And uh, you've you've taken those concepts and, and, and made new stories. Now, is the third book going to be like the second one where you really don't have to read the previous books to understand and jump right in? Or? Of course. I, I really value as, as a reader not having to, you know, read the previous books and jump right in. I kind of love uh, writers who write series, not sequels. In other words, you know, it's it's just another adventure in this awesome universe. <laughs> All right. All right. I got, well, I've we, got a great story about that, actually. Yeah, for for, for okay. Christmas, my wife gave me um, the first two books in the Time Odyssey series by uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Stephen Baxter. Uh, Tobias, are you familiar with those books? Yes, yes. Okay. So I, I, the, the third one has just come out, and so I was thinking, well, okay, they got three now. I really got to start reading these books. And uh, she gave me the first two books, and so I started reading uh, Sunstorm. And I'm about, I don't know, 65 pages into it. It's a real page-turner. But I, all the while I'm thinking, man, this thing really throws you right into the middle of the action. I mean, I, I'm, I'm following it just fine. But, man, it, and, and, and I just I set it down. And I was eating lunch, and I looked, and it said, oh, book two of the series. I, I, I actually started with the wrong book. So so those guys have done it pretty tight, too, because you actually could just pick it up and, uh, and start reading yeah. it. Now I've gone back and started reading the correct one. Cause, you know, Even worse if you do like I did, because I can be a clueless wonder quite often. Um, and read the entire second book, you know, with, including spoilers to the first book, and, and get to the end of it, and then pick up the first one and be like, 
very confused. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, who's this but, person? So you, you took a, a kinder route for your readers and just said, okay, you can read any of these in any order and enjoy the whole world and, and the whole universe so. I've created. Some reviewers have said that you know there's a lot more joy in reading the first one first and the second one second. Well, because uh, you, you will have that spoilers issue, I would think, if nothing else. I mean, you know, you're, yeah, you're, if nothing else, and and. Uh, but, you know, uh, quite a few people picked up the second one and were intrigued enough to uh, then move on to the first one. So, you know, I know that uh, it, it definitely worked uh, vice versa for a lot of people. And, and the third one, uh, I would say, stands alone even more than the second one. Well, um, and it, it, can you give us any, uh, I don't know, a taste of, of what, what to look forward to for those who, who, who are familiar with the universe you've created? Oh, sure. Um, Sly Mongoose is a lot of fun, eh? I was at a, speaking of upcoming scientific, you know, stuff, this is um, my most scientific, scientifically grounded novel yet. I happen to be attending a reading by Jeff Landis, and, uh, or a presentation by Jeff Landis, and he was talking about everything he knew about Mars, which he tends to do. He's sort of a Martian expert. Uh, he's a scientist at, of course, NASA. And in the course of events, he told me to stay for the next one about Venus. He thought I might find that fun, and I did, and he started uh, talking about the fact that uh, Venus sounds like a really un inhospitable planet. It's got, you know, 800-degree uh, surface heat, you know, which can melt just about anything we build. It's got 90 times Earth pressure or thereabouts, and it rains acid rain, sulfuric acid, which is really nasty. So no, that's not – I don't want to put my summer home there. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, and of course you can't breathe the air because it's carbon dioxide. So all in all, it doesn't sound like a fun planet to chill on. But uh, what Jeff said is that at 100,000 feet, it kind of uh, everything's shaken up a bit because at 100,000 feet, the pressure is the same as the Earth as, as far as the atmosphere goes, and the temperature is the same. And the only thing you have to worry about since you're above the clouds is not sulfuric acid, but just finding oxygen to breathe. And coincidentally, if you take air, which you need to breathe anyway, and put it in a big enough balloon or structure, it floats really well. It's a lifting gas, air, on Venus, a very good lifting gas. So a mixture yeah. of, by air, you mean oxygen and nitrogen, nitrogen, I guess, right? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. natural air that we need to breathe. Our air, yeah, okay. So basically, right. if you were to take, you know, a structure a mile wide and, and make a giant dome out of it, uh, fill it with air that you need to breathe anyway, and, and put some people inside of it, it just floats at 100,000 feet. And it's one of the most hospitable places in the solar system outside of Earth at 100,000 feet in Venus's atmosphere. That's amazing. I think, you know what? I think we talked about this last time we were on the show. So you get the Flying City, yeah, like, like yeah. in uh, Empire Strikes Back. Well, when he said that, right? I thought, wonderful. We've got Sky City, Cloud City. You know? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's Star Wars it's with a reason. You, you Star actually... Wars with a reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And the, the great thing about being a science fiction writer is when you can get it, when you can take a trope and make it justifiable and rational and play with it. And I just couldn't turn it down. And so that's, that's what Sly Mongoose is. For those who are interested, if you go on YouTube and you type in Sly Mongoose, I should have a book trailer up there already. A book trailer? Yeah, yeah. I put together cool. a little video presentation, kind of uh, getting the core concepts across and showing the cover off. Well, what a uh, great idea. Well, uh, you know, I can pull YouTube straight into our show notes, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find that trailer and uh, put it in the show notes. That's great. Okay. Very yeah. cool. But uh, we should point out that uh, the book – is not about Venus, right? It's about another. It's about yeah. It's a Venus like elsewhere. the Venus like city. I, I use yeah. Venus as the idea, you know, the concept, and uh, it's actually another planet in in my continuing string of planets that I've been exploring since Ragamuffin. Right. And uh, you know, we meet some new characters who live in this in this world. You know, that to be lowered down and 
what look like giant pressure suits to mine what they can from the boiling surface. And, you know, we have, uh, we have airship chases and, you know, those sorts of things. It's, it's, it's a very rip-roaring, even more so than my other two novels. <laughs> oh, sounds like a lot of fun. All right, well, we're looking forward to that. Actually, that uh, kind of reminds me uh, a little bit, since uh, it was a science talk, you say, that kind of spurred you to have the idea to write this book. Yeah. Uh, but before the before the show, Stephen and I were talking for a few minutes, and we got on the subject of, you know, the kind of hard science fiction versus the the, the the softer, more more fantasy type, and then there's you know there's other genres, the military type, and uh, mm-hmm. you know science fiction mixed with fantasy. Where do you put yourself on if you were going to plot all that out? Where would you say you live in that uh, in that spectrum? I gleefully inhabit space opera. I hope. Okay. I hope that's how people would look at me. You know, which is somewhat hard, but SF. You know, we we like SF and concepts and and the science, but we tend to uh, really really love the big setting kick, the eyeball kick, the really vast structures and, and, and really over-the-top scenarios. So we don't let the science constrain us. We use it as a starting point for wild ideas. You know, uh, Phil and I have actually had a co- conversations about this. We, In what we do, you know, Tobias, well, we, we, we uh, you know, gather science stories, we think about them, we, we wonder how all this fits together to, and, and try to imagine a future with all these different puzzle pieces, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and and we've come down to it, you know, we're not, and neither of us are scientists. Uh, I think that's fair to say, right, Phil? That's very fair. <laughs> okay. I'm certainly not a scientist. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and so, you know, we don't know, that, uh, our our understanding of science is just based on what we read. And so we tend to, Phil has said it exactly this way, we tend to entertain the ideas that entertain us, mm-hmm. okay? and Which is not good science necessarily, but it's not, you know, it, what we we do try to be realistic about uh, the scenarios that we come up in our mind. We, we were kind of thinking, now, how is that similar to what Tobias does? And uh, I, I mean, do you, I mean, is that is that kind of similar way the way you go with it? Um, you know, we're always mining science, you know, for the inspiration. You know? Right. And the harder the you know the more science fictiony the story is, the more you're looking to do that that rigorous extrapolation. Right. And, and definitely, I, I see some commonality. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's you know you just like you say you, you you know you don't allow the science to constrain a good story. If you right. got a good story there, you'd, you you throw a little ESP in uh, ESP ESP <laughs> into the story. Or, or a little or a little ESP in, I suppose. You know, you could put in them, them in the future as well. But you know what I'm saying. You you, you would yeah. you could throw a little soft uh, elements into a story if it if it advanced the story, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. But you, you you sort of see yourself on the, a little more on the hard end of, of sci-fi, though. I would like to. I have no idea where history will judge me. But certainly, if you read uh, Ragamuffin, you know, my novel, I'm, I was very obsessed with sort of geolocative, you know, uh, layers of, of uh, reality that could be laid down, in, you know, like reality markup, I call it, that could be added to the environment that you're in. And I see a lot of that, you know, I, that came about from my reading about stuff that people are trying to do with that today. So certainly, yeah, I, I try to cram as much of that in. But then, you know, I'm only, I'm not paid to be a full-time scientist. And so at some point, you know, you, you, you do have to write the adventure. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, I think, I think one, of the, one of the big similarities between what we do is that um, whether uh, on the blog or, or any other futures trying to put together a, a picture of what the world might be like, or a science fiction author 
uh, trying to you know propose a, uh, a a potential future world. We we both have this desire to create a compelling picture of what it's going to be like, right? That's, yeah. That's definitely one thing that that we have in common. The the the, the difference, I guess, I guess, the big difference is the one you mentioned, Stephen. If um, if the science gets in the way, we actually have to try to back off, although we, we look for ways around things ourselves sometimes when, uh, when it's a really good idea. But, um, yeah, but when faster than light travel, I still want it. I don't care what the science says. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah. You know, things like that. But, yeah, I see what you, you're, you're exactly right. right. We try to, um, you know, uh, we try to get it right. I mean, uh, although we're not scientists, we try to get it right. And, I suppose when you're trying to, especially when you're trying to write hard sci-fi, you're trying to get it right too. Tobias. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of commonality there. Well, and the other one that occurs to me is that, um, for us anyway, because of, because of kind of our specific orientation, we're always focusing, or not always, eighty twenty probably focusing on futures that we'd really like to see happen. Right. So we're, we're always painting these pictures of, you know, what a great world this would be, right? If 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 this came into being and and how how this change would would work with this one, and you get this whole kind of scenario. Now, a science fiction writer doesn't necessarily work from that premise at all, right? You, no, no. I mean, some of the classic science fiction is dystopian. You know, right. if this technology gets loose, here's what could really happen, and it's not going to be good. <laughs> but it's interesting from a story point of view. Well, conflict drives story, so there's no right. conflict, and you know, technology gone wrong. Yeah. So, well, I, mean, what, I was thinking of one thing you said about getting it right, and I was thinking of you know William Gibson, who influenced so much about the world we live in right now, as far as the internet and and you know the cyberpunk revolution. And I was just uh, reading an interview with him a long time ago, where he's talking about the fact that uh, he really didn't consult with computer engineers because all of them would have told him that there's no way there was the bandwidth in order to do the stuff he was imagining possible. Yeah, he was he was imagining beyond what they thought was was possible, and and he turns out to be writer than they were, more right. right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Partly because people read that and were so compelled by it that they set about to figure out how, how can we make that happen. Even though it's a dystopia. Well, a lot of the technology's right, well, but the, the world isn't necessarily uh, like what he describes, although maybe more like right. it than, than, uh, than we realize, I think, maybe in some ways. But we're not as far in the future as, uh, as they were in, say, Neuromancer. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'd call it dystopic. I mean... I felt when I first started reading his stuff that it was interesting because I think of it as uh, blue-collar, uh, real, street, gritty, in that he doesn't necessarily say that everywhere is like this. It's just that it was science fiction set down uh, from the average guy's and lower-than-average guy's person uh, point of view on the street in a, in a large, gritty place. And so much science fiction seems to be previous to that. A lot of it was very much like you know teams of engineers inside of a NASA you know, facility, and what he bought from it was this sort of real, sort of uh, very much a, a lower, you know, lower class looking out at the world type area, and it just felt so much more real. And it doesn't even, you know, I, I don't imagine that all the suburbs have been destroyed in a Gibson future. I think they kind of limp along, and they're out there, and they're people who live sort of middle class lives. I just think it's very focused on people who aren't. Right. Yeah, the, I think the burnouts. Yeah. I, I think mm -hmm. there's even a. Uh, reference in uh, Count Zero to to, to that. Uh, two of these characters who were involved in this, you know, were moving into cyberspace to carry out some kind of mission. You know, one remarks the other, "This is this is like your whole life, isn't it? You know, I mean, I've got a wife, I got a kid. You know, it's yeah, 
Oh, yeah, that all goes on, but William Gibson isn't interested in any of that, so we're not going to see anybody's, like, pleasant home life or anything like that. Right? We're, exactly. We're, we're going to see this kind of bleak uh, world that they're, that they're living in that, that, is, that is of interest to him and, of course, becomes very much of interest to us as we're, as we're reading the story. Right. But it does seem awfully bleak. I mean, it's, it's not a very happy, cheerful future, that's for sure. When you, no, 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 when no. But it's kind of like, you know, Charles Bukowski's, you know, uh, referencing the bar life that, that he lived and writing about it doesn't necessarily mean that other people outside of that imagined life, uh, imagined life of his characters are not necessarily living normal lives. <laughs> right, right. Well, I was just watching... Um, Let's 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 take this up a notch and talk about something a little more highbrow, if we could, if you guys are ready sure. for that. Because because I was um, over over New Year's Eve um, was watching uh, on American Movie Classics. They had the Planet of the Apes complete uh, com- complete series. Okay, so this is uh, <laughs> the, you know this is the kind of stuff I'll allow myself to pig out on while I'm on vacation. I, I, so I sat down to watch those movies, thinking back. For one thing, guys, guys my age, and I don't know, Stephen, you're you're a little younger, Tobias. I assume you're quite a bit younger. But um, for, for guys my age, there are really there are two guys. Okay, there 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 are two absolute guys. One has got to be William Shatner, right? Captain Kirk, the guy. Okay, <laughs> and, and and then the other one, a close second, has got to be Charlton Heston, right? Because he got Planet of the Apes, and you got Omega Man, right? You got Soylent Green. He was just like Mister. You know, out there in the, and also like earthquake and stuff like that back at the time those movies were coming out. So, so I have these um, memories from my childhood and adolescence of watching these movies uh, originally on TV. I never saw them uh, in the cinema, but but I have these memories of this just incredible epic set of movies. You know, this mind blowing science fiction set of movies, and I, I have to report that. Uh, that it disappointed just a little bit on on didn't on, hold up <laughs> didn't hold up very well I I got my wife to I'm shocked <laughs> you, you know I was selling her on it and selling her on it and um and I I I, I, I had the whole thing and I said okay well let's just, we'll watch the first one because as great as they are the first one is absolutely the best one okay let's yeah you know let's watch up. let's watch I'll, I'll grant you that I can just imagine what she said to you after the film. Well, damn you, Phil! Yeah, damn you all to hell! Right? <laughs> <laughs> At your liberty, and no, because she conked. I mean, she was asleep probably. Uh, um, I don't know, uh, half an hour into it, because the first thing I noticed about these movies is they're paced horribly. Um, com- I may be compared to the diet of cinema that we have these days, where it's just all continuous slam bam action. I don't know, but it just seemed like a lot of it's just like filler. You know, they have like two or three really interesting ideas that they want to get to, and they're going to take their time because they need to fill the two hours with, with stuff. So, so that was the one thing. So I, I lost her. She fell asleep. But I got to the end, and I was thinking, man, that's really just not very believable at all. <laughs> you know, and, and what, what's sad about that is it starts out pretty convincing. I mean, it starts out um, – it, 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 the first few seconds are actually it's a hard science fiction story. Right. You, you, you got Charlton Heston sitting in his spaceship, and he's talking about, well, we're a few months out, but we're traveling near light speed, and if the calculations are correct, like 600 years have passed on Earth. Right. And like, hey, an actual scientific principle in work, and then from then on, it's just all, you know, it 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 goes, 
it, it goes bad pretty fast. Then you get to the second one, because, of course, I pushed on, you know, should let her go to bed. I don't care. I'm watching these are the best movies ever, you know, I, although I was starting to doubt after uh, <laughs> after the first one. The second one, of course, Heston couldn't be bothered. He had, a, like, a career to pursue. He was probably making an earthquake or something. So they bring in this um, James Franciscus, right, who, like, looked like him. And I don't know if we were supposed to forget that it wasn't Charlton Heston or if, you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what the plan was there, but that movie... Beneath the Planet of the Apes, I think is the bleakest movie ever made. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna argue that that is like you know the, one of the most horrible visions of the future you'll ever you'll ever get. And I'm sorry, I'm the talking one where about they this. Kind of worship that nuclear bomb. <laughs> is that the one? Yeah, they worship the bomb. Yeah. You got the yeah. mutants living in the subway worshiping the nuclear bomb. Yeah. Um, yeah, Charlton Heston, who shows up for this cameo at the very beginning, at the very end. And here's a big spoiler warning to anyone who's not seen Beneath the Planet of the Apes. I'm about to give away the ending of the movie, okay? Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? You've had 36 years to see this thing. <laughs> and, and really don't. But, but um, so, so Heston and Franciscus, they're trying to make sure they don't launch the bomb. The apes come in. The apes start shooting everybody up. Charlton Heston... You know, as apes take, are want to do. What, what, what's that? As apes are want to do. Well, yeah. as, as gorillas. <laughs> hey, excuse me, as gorillas are want to do, of course. Uh, chimpanzees would want no part of that, which will lead <laughs> us yeah, there, there were different. Yeah, there were different species involved in this. <laughs> That's right. They, you know, the orangutans, they, they, they bossed everyone around. The chimps were the uh, intellectuals, and the, and the orangutans were the, uh, you know, gun-toting, uh, you know, just vicious, brutal bad guys. So, so anyway, yeah, so, so there he is. Heston, he's bleeding, and he turns to Dr. Zayas, the orangutan, um, the head of the Ministry of Science, because, they, oh, they were bureaucrats, that's right. Um, and this is all actually laid out a lot more clearly in the original novel by Pierre Boulle, which, which is fairly good. And the, uh, I think the remake, which we'll get to in a moment, probably got closer to the feel of that original book, maybe, than, uh, than they were able to pull up with the book. But anyway, I was about to give away the end of the movie. So, so here's Heston, he's bleeding. He begs Zayas for help. Zayas says... You know, not, I'm not going to help a human. Humans suck. And so, <laughs> words to that effect. Yeah. So, so Charlton Heston, in, a, in an action that is t- totally ambiguous as far as I'm concerned, and, and, and you get to pick how the movie ends, okay, depending on your, uh, uh, I guess, level of cynicism. He either dies and in just the throes of death, his hand accidentally hits the button and launches the doomsday bomb and destroys the earth. Or he's so bitter that uh, the orangutan won't help him that he deliberately hits the button and, uh, and destroys the earth. And in fact, I think that's worth pursuing. Guys, what do you think? Go. Don't go in theories. <laughs> I, uh, I think the moral of this story, Phil, is that uh, a lot of sci-fi has a shelf life, and Tobias uh, is mindful of that, right? <laughs> you, try to, you try to write for the ages, don't you? Um, uh, you know, as far as uh, as far as the ending that I saw when I first saw it, uh, yeah. Yeah, I thought that, it? I thought it was accidental. Okay, you thought it was accidental. Tobias, thoughts? You, you can never go home again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's true too. Um, Good point. Yeah, you know the way those, those. It's funny the way those fail to hold up those memories you have of it, and then when you go back. For me, it was like the A team. Yeah, and those childhood. Shows, the A team. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, you know it's. It doesn't make sense now. Um, I, you know, uh, 
I can't even remember what I thought. I just remember being sort of bewildered by the entire movie. Yeah, it is. It's kind of you know, it's, just sort of you know like what what was that? Was my reaction? Well, here's here's a, a thing that'll blow your mind. Okay, I, I saw a little making of all the Planet of the Apes things that they also showed, and they were talking about um, stuff was cut out of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. One thing that was cut out, I don't think it would have added any clarity at all, but it was kind of interesting, was that there was a character in there who was a human and ape hybrid. That these hmm. mutants who lived under the city, they were trying all kinds of their own little genetic experiments, and they had created a mutant They're ape. They're getting freaky down there in the subway caves. Getting <laughs> <laughs> very freaky. Here's the... Here's the kicker, though. This is this is the part that they throw off glibly, but it's the part that really uh, got my attention when they said, uh, but we had to cut that scene out. That was a little too objectionable, and we were afraid the movie would lose its G rating. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay to destroy the earth, but uh, uh, getting freaky with chimpanzees, uh, that's, that's crossing the line. <laughs> wow. I can't believe that a movie that ends with, you know, a nuclear holocaust, was a G-rated movie. That just yeah. absolutely astounds me. So. Ooh, anyway, anyway, I won't. Uh, I did then watch Escape, which is quite a bit better, and uh, didn't didn't bother with uh, didn't bother with the others. All, all that's to say that there was a dystopian view of the future where they didn't let the science get in the way whatsoever. Or, yeah. Or logic, or you know, good storytelling, good acting, good special effects, any of that. Well, Maybe it sort of reminds me of I Am Legend. I just saw that film, and uh, and. The science is all out there and everything, but it's it, it manages to be a good story, so I enjoyed it. Tobias, have you seen I Am Legend? Yes, I did. We keep yeah. getting to this movie uh, on this show, and I'm, I still haven't seen it. But uh, what, what your thoughts on that? I thought it was pretty good. Um, you know, uh, many people have pointed out the, the problems with it, um, uh, particularly with uh, sort of the ending. Some of the, you know whether or not it held true to the you know, to the book or whether it was just a remake of Omega Man and so forth and so on. I was just particularly taken by the rather tense filmmaking in terms of the shadows uh, when he enters the buildings and encounters the creatures and how well that was done. It's been a long time since I was on the edge of my seat uh, with a particularly well-done uh, set of scenes like that. And you really believe that Will Smith, for example, when his alarm goes off that it's time to close up for the night, I mean, yeah, yeah. the dread that's written yeah. on his face. I mean, that and and you know, and his interaction with the dog and 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 and, yeah. and all the, you know all of that. It's just so believable and good that um, I don't, you know I, I can take you, you can take the problems of a movie like that and set them aside and just enjoy it for the, what it is. And uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like guess you do that with a lot of sci-fi, really. I mean. Um, you know, particularly if if you happen to know the science and you know that well, this is just not possible. Well, you just set it aside and enjoy the movie, and well, the, or, the or one, the book or whatever. The one small tweak in that it 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 bugged me in that it did humanize the uh, the I forget what they're called now, dark seekers, dark seekers. Um, in the original book, I mean, gosh, I hope people are literate enough that if I talk about the ending, I'm not going to get shot here. <laughs> stop. Stop me now. Um, but well, you can stop listening to the MP3 of your, yeah. yeah. <laughs> fast forward, fast forward. That's it. And, uh, and you know, in the, in the book, the uh, idea is that, uh, you know, he's, he's the last man on Earth, not that he's going to save mankind, but that he's sort of a curiosity that the dark seekers are remembering him, you know, and what he does. Yeah. Um, the questionable moral 
morals of what he did because they have become the new humanity and he's the old humanity and he's dying out, but he, he clings to trying to save humanity and convert them back and, and does some questionable things. And it's interesting in the movie that you get a hint of that, you know, when they try and capture him because uh, he's captured one of them. They, they, you know, are trying to get out in the sunlight to get at him to stop him from doing the things he's doing. And so I just thought it was very curious that the movie had hints of that book in it still, but then didn't go down that path. I, I was it, yeah, they didn't go down that path at all. He was apparently watching the movie. I'm I'm wondering what you know what are these dark you know these dark seekers do seem to have souls and and think and you know what I mean. They, right. they, they seem to be thinking creatures, not mindless animals. And so it's interesting that that the movie then chose to take the path it did because I started to as a science fiction you know, watchers begin to question, you know, what, what does that mean? You know, what's the context of what he's doing now mean in, in, in light of the fact that they may be a new species of their own? Interesting. So it raises some fairly uh, fairly serious issues in, in, in well, a way. On purpose, I don't think. Yeah, oh, okay. Well. <laughs> yeah the original book did, for sure. The original um, book did, for sure, and I think that they tried to follow the Omega Man, but a little bit of the book kind of stuck with them, and they didn't, didn't really flush it out. Yeah, I, d I really don't remember there being any serious issues raised in Omega Man, but it's been a few years. Right, right. A in fact, when I heard that this movie was coming out, that it was a remake of Omega Man, my my thinking at the time was, well, Will Smith is no Charlton Heston. This is never going to happen. Now I'm thinking Charlton Heston's no Charlton Heston either. So <laughs> <laughs> your, your memories have been tainted by uh, give him by a shot. Yeah, you know, you know. sunlight has been shown in on that. Um, <laughs> but it's, 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 it, I thought it was an interesting uh, movie, and it, it, it was an interesting path. But yeah, he was he was a legend in the original book. He was a legend to the the Dark Seekers, I guess. And yeah. And then and, uh, and in this movie version, that's not that he's still the title character. He's still legend, right. but uh, he's it's it's no longer legend to them. So anyway, it, it was an yeah, it was some interesting changes they made there. Well, uh, the they all, the other change that they made was uh, surprising to me, and I, I get you know it's, they're making it for an American audience, so so be it. But uh, after being a movie that's very rational and based in, in rational questions, you know we've created a virus, we're trying to survive from the mutations of it, you know we're trying to build a cure. Uh, the person who knows, you know, the the woman shows up and she's like, you know, God told me that there's a safety place, and he's like, I've never heard of a safety place. And she says, oh, it'll be there. You know, all of a sudden, it's this, you know, there are all these religious implications and faith and whatnot, and it, it came out of nowhere, and I was kind of like, what, what's going on here towards the end? Yeah. It, it was almost a, an idea from the stand being thrown in. Exactly. Uh, you know, God speaks louder because there's fewer people, that kind of thing, that kind of yeah. idea. Yeah. Uh, it was thrown in, I mean, almost exactly the same way, and it was, and like you say, it was out of the blue because they had not it, it set that up at all. It works in the stand for me. You know, I'm, I'm not particularly religious, but uh, I like the stand actually, even though it is highly, um, because it's 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 a thread that works all throughout the stand. You know, right? Yeah, he, he sets resolution. it up from the very beginning. Yeah, um, but in this context, it it, it you know it, it came out of the blue, much like the sort of crucifixion sequence of uh, Spider-Man in that second book, where he's strapped to the front of that subway car. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, happened. I, I, ne- I never saw that in terms of a crucifixion. I oh yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, he's spread and out. He, and, he, and then when he's taken off people, the cro- and when he's taken off the front, yeah, they, he has a rip in his side, and they kind of carry him on their shoulders and lay him down, and he's got his feet crossed. In his oh yeah, yeah I, I saw it immediately. Yeah, that's that was huh. there. right over my head. <laughs> well, you were just enjoying a Spider-Man movie, Phil. You didn't yeah, know you had. There you to, go. I didn't <laughs> know you had to carry your Bible in there. <laughs> Well, well, you what, know, what's your back to the Omega Man, actually. Let me bring this full circle. Okay, okay here we I, go. I can, I can help us out here. This will all have meaning and come around here because uh, my, my critique of the Spider-Man one is I didn't feel the crucifixion sequence works because the crucifixion means you give up your life or something of incredible value to save the people. I, I disagree, Tobias, but we'll get to that in a second. Go ahead and okay. make your point. Um, you know, something has to be given up that's, that's major. Um, and so uh, when Spider-Man is, is, is crucified, it seems cheap to me because it really doesn't cost them all that much to, to save those people on the subway car. And in Omega Man, the crucifixion sequence at the end of it is one I, I cite as a perfect example of using it in a movie to really bring home some impact. Because at the very end of the Omega Man, Charlton Heston is lying in that fountain bleeding out, and he's in a perfect crucifixion pose because he's just handed over the last vial of blood that will save all of humanity. Right. Mm, And that really is a good use of a crucifixion scene, where I felt the Spider-Man one was a a cheap uh, sort of way to manipulate certain people. Well, the reason I disagree, Tobias, is because Peter Parker, by then he had his mask off, right? Right. Um, He uh, had made the decision that he was either going to save those people or die trying. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's that's why I think it worked. Why it worked for me. You know, I... Yeah, I found that a very touching scene but, in, in a in a comic argument. book movie of all things. But but yeah, maybe not as for it. maybe good not as uh, straightforward an application of the motif, right? As what you're getting in. Uh, Absolutely, it wasn't. It wasn't. It, yeah, I, I can see there's quite a bit of difference there between that and the Omega Man use of it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Well, With now that, it was part of full circle, and that was pretty impressive. You brought it around, man. You brought it back to Omega Man. Now we should really move move away, but I can't help it. I've got a, I've got a couple more things I got to say about this because you you want to mess this whole thing up. How about that crucifixion in uh, which one of the Matrix movies was it? Oh, <laughs> how valid of a crucifixion scene was that? You know, was that the, on, on on that scale? If say Omega Man is a pretty good one and uh, Peter Parker is an okay one, you know, where where's that one fit? Uh, I felt like so much of that movie, it was just kind of there to... Uh, I think they were just trying to hit some buttons. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, yeah I don't think that they were actually... And or annoy the audience. Yeah, just, uh, yeah uh, let's see if we can, let's see if we can uh, uh, you know, make the fundamentalists uh, cringe a little bit. I, I, don't, I don't know that they were actually saying, moving the story along with that. I think they were much. getting pretty desperate at that point for uh, trying to get, get the movies, get those sequels to do something. <laughs> Yeah, I think so too. I, I yeah, I really think they painted themselves into a corner by making sequels to the Matrix. It might have been uh, the Matrix. Really the uh, Matrix was a wonderful movie that stood alone, and uh, yeah. I, I, this, to me, the sequels you just put them on a shelf. Uh, Animatrix, the animated thing, was the, actually there were sequences in that that were far better than the two live action sequels. Yeah, yeah, I'd have to agree. I, I thought it was much better. Yeah. The interesting thing, you know, about those those sequels was that. They gave credence to the the one woman who was suing the Wachowski brothers for stealing her idea, and you know at the first time uh, I heard that, you know that always happens whenever there's a successful movie, they actually have a budget reserved for that uh, when they make a movie. It's part of their expected fees, you know, just to have to 
fight a legal battle or pay someone who claims that that's their idea. And, you know, so when I heard that there was a woman, you know, suing the Wachowski brothers, I thought, okay, yeah, whatever, that always happens. And then when the second one came out, I thought, ah, she might have a point because <laughs> there's such a difference between the two movies. It, it's like light, night and day. You, you just sort of like had that little thought in the back of your head, like maybe they did rip off a script and then not know what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they they should have asked her to write the sequel, and then and everybody would have been fine. She would have gotten the big money that she deserved, and and we would have gotten better movies, maybe. I don't know. I, 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 I hate to dog them too bad because the first movie was so good. The first movie was still worth uh, having to put up with it. Yeah, yeah, because you can sit through those other two, and then you go, okay, well that's whatever. But yeah, yeah, they come on TV, and you don't watch them, and uh, we'll wait for the reboot. Life goes on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Now we did have one final comment about uh, I Am Legend here that one of our uh, uh, one of our guests in the chat room wrote. Uh, I found it amusing that the bad guys had pants on. <laughs> That's really yeah. good. It's, it's three years you know, later, and these wild three creatures. years they've been walking around feral, and uh, they still got their pants on. That's uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and even the uh, even really, the fe- really good Levi's. even the female that they uh, that he captured, uh, she was wearing a top, you know. Um, <laughs> apparently, they're all shirtless except for the women. There you go. It's the it's the Incredible Hulk effect, you know. Where <laughs> yeah. the, the, yeah, they're gonna the, the, all the clothes will, will make be you rip off all your clothes except for those you have to have on in order to pass Comic Code Authority, right? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, yeah. You can kill you can kill a well what. Billions of people in a movie, but you can't dare show one naked. <laughs> there you go. Well, once again, we got to keep that G rating for the uh, for the Holocaust, so as many kids can see it as possible. You got to keep the G rating for the Holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, it's a uh, sad state of affairs. Okay, have one more movie thought before we move on to other things, because I know Stephen, you've got other things you want to talk about tonight, and we've kind of gotten off this huge tangent, but it's so much fun. Uh, you guys looking forward to seeing uh, Cloverfield? I, you know. I would say I'm looking forward to it, but I don't know what I'm looking forward to, so I'm not sure if I should be looking forward to it. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, it's 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 like it, their marketing of this is just uh, just to put a big question mark in your mind. So maybe you have right, to go to the movie. But it could be the next, you know, it could be the science fiction version of Snakes on a Plane, for all I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We we really don't know, do we? No. We, yeah. Well. Well, what do you what do you think? It, I mean, what are your thoughts as to what it could be, Phil? That there's better be a big monster. I'm going to be really disappointed. Well, it's got to be a huge monster. It'd be like <laughs> chucking that Statue of Liberty's hat around. I mean, that's the only thing we really know from the from from the trailer. You know, when I was watching that trailer, I was thinking, you know, this is what that Godzilla remake should have been. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, because this is scary. I mean, the 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 trailer they first started showing. I don't know. Was it earlier this? Earlier last fall, was it in the summer? But you just saw this trailer, you know, these people at a party, and then all of a sudden there's explosions going on outside, and all of a sudden the Statue of Liberty's head appears in the street, and people are screaming, and it's chaos. And that was the whole trailer. Yeah. Right? It didn't it didn't say Cloverfield coming soon or anything, you know. It just gave a yeah. date that the that the movie was going to be released. So it's very clever marketing, if nothing else. Very but, clever. Very clever. But, but I've read uh, one set of speculations that the monster will never be shown. Oh, I'm wow. starting to think, well, you know, that might be one way you could pull that movie off, actually, at this point. Cause, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, what's it going to look like that's going to measure up to just the, the sort of dread that they've created with that with that trailer? I really don't know what it could be. I mean, if it was Godzilla, it would be funny, right? I, I'd get a kick out of that, but it would it would not be – you wouldn't take it seriously anymore, right? You would think. Right. 
Oh, they pulled a good one over on us that time. <laughs> uh, they'd have to throw in Godzuki just to make it interesting. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, right, yeah, that's... Admit, I'm quite intrigued. I'm quite intrigued. Yeah. Yeah, same here. I'm, uh, that, that's one I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, and I, you know, I, I have a feeling I'm going to be terribly disappointed, but... Uh, but you're hoping you're not. Well, J.J. Abrams, you know? I mean, the guy, when he delivers, he delivers incredibly, so we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, see, what he, uh, we'll see what he comes up with. <laughs> Give the man a chance. So he's got the Star Trek franchise in his hands now, so we, you know, we've got to, uh, we've got to believe he can do good stuff, right? <laughs> I, I got a lot of people that, uh, I mean, I've, I've read recently that a lot of people are a little concerned about the direction he's going with that, uh, with the Star Trek franchise. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, for those who don't know, it's it's set uh, when Kirk. Uh, for, the, for the most part, it's set when Kirk and and others are still in. Uh, the Academy together, Starfleet Academy, and they have a whole segment around the Kobayashi Maru, and uh, it, there's a rumor that I mean, it's, it, it turns into this big scandal that he cheated on uh, uh, with with the Kobayashi Maru, and I mean, they, there's protests on graduation day. There's protesters all around. Kirk cheated, you know, with signs and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd be very interested to see how, where in the world they go with with that and, and how that plays into the entire movie. <laughs> that, that's kind of interesting because it's like, who cares, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> we all know he went on to become a captain in Starfleet. Yeah. So. And saved the Earth many times, so give well, my, the man a break. My one big fear about that is that you, you take it back to Starfleet again. Okay, there's, there's two things that I fear. Is one is that um, they're just going to rip out all the continuity that we currently know, which they've always felt free to do anyway. But uh, right. But having uh, Kirk and Spock meet at Starfleet Academy is just not the timeline, the sequence of events that we know at all. So I, I, I'm concerned about that. And uh, maybe they've got some way of pulling it off. I don't know. But uh, Well, they'll just ask us to forget it. It's sort of, <laughs> you know, forget what we know. Uh, it's sort of like with young, uh, with young Sherlock Holmes, it worked. Well, yeah, they opened up at the beginning and said, yeah, we know in the books it says they met later, but in this story we're going to say they met younger. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, actually, come along for the ride and you'll enjoy it. Yeah, if they do that, I guess I'd be okay with it, sure. Yeah. Um, but the other, the greater fear, uh, and, and this one I will not forgive, um, giving my uh, Don Corleone uh, threat here, okay, this I will not forgive, is if they turn it into like if they make Starfleet Academy like Hogwarts, okay? <laughs> if, oh, yeah. oh yeah. You know if it's like you know Jimmy Kirk's wacky adventures in uh, you know in his school days, I just uh, I don't know. That's, well, that's... In, in the the other rumor is that uh, he's able to cheat on the test because he seduces the program writer who. You know, who's, who's a hot babe, obviously. Okay, well, now that's my James Kirk right there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of stuff I want to hear. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's just yeah. let's hope she was an Orion slave girl type. <laughs> yeah, if she's blue, then the movie's getting all kinds of credit with me. But <laughs> we'll see. Any rate, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that one as well. But, yeah, Cloverfield comes first. I guess we get uh, Star Trek and... In the fall, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure when it's coming. Sure. I, all I know is we, you know, we, we, we bring a we bring a, a writer onto the show, and then we just slum talking to Star Trek. We're so sorry, Tobias. We we drug you through. You're the one that started it when you said you were going to raise this to another level. I yeah. well, I was kidding. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was kidding. It, was, it was a joke. So anyway, let's talk about more. Let's let's. I know you've got a lot of serious stuff you want to talk about, Stephen. So I'm going to turn the show over to you, and hopefully we can we can we can salvage this somehow. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, uh, Tobias, uh, I hate to shift gears on you uh, too bad, but I, I guess I kind of need to. Did you get to watch uh, any of the presidential debate uh, yesterday? Um, I, I unfortunately uh, was in transit to Pittsburgh, so okay. I did not have a chance to see any of the debates. No, sorry. Well, we uh, uh, on on the show. Wait, wait, let me let me wait. Just one one thing. Uh, since since he uh, Tobias, since you went ahead and apologized, but let me just say I had every opportunity and you know could not. Be bothered to turn it on, okay? So. Well, it was four freaking hours. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, who's going to watch that? I mean, I I, I, I watched yeah, some of it, and yeah, uh, but the Daily Show is is not on. It's it's really hard to catch all the important <laughs> highlights. Exactly. Well, fortunately, my uh, wife was talking to her mom in Malaysia who was watching it, so I got a few highlights that way. And <laughs> yeah. I yeah. felt like that was all I really needed, but. Uh, but Stephen, you so you soldiered on. You you watched all four hours, or no way, no way. Okay. I, I I watched uh, I watched the last half of the Republican part of it, and uh, then moved on to a movie or something. <laughs> when when uh, cleanser, yeah, well, yeah. When they uh, when they started the Democratic half, I didn't. I, unfortunately, I didn't stick around for the second half. But anyway, it was. Um, what I thought was interesting, though, uh, Tobias, was that several weeks ago we had a, a great, a, you know, a, a guest on by the name of Robert Zubrin, and he had written a book called uh, Energy Victory. Energy Victory. Thanks, mm-hmm. Bill. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, the Case for Mars guy, right? Exactly. That's from Mars. That's the guy. And we wanted to talk with him about the Case for Mars, and uh, we uh, got him on the show. And actually, I wasn't, I wasn't present that night, but Phil got him on the show, and he was so brilliant in, t- in speaking about his latest book. Energy victory. That that's all y'all talked about. Right? He really got a, he really got our attention with it. I mean, uh, he had sent me a copy of the book, and I thought, well, okay, great. We'll have him on. We'll do 15 minutes of this thing, and then then we'll talk about Mars. But uh, <laughs> there was no opportunity to talk about Mars because uh, it was just very compelling what he what he had to say. It was a, re- a very interesting um, uh, scenario that he was outlining for how we might deal with getting ourselves off foreign oil. Talking about um, implementing. Um, Flex fuel uh, as, as standard for, for for all U.S. cars, and talking about why that was important um, economically for us, also politically, uh, and on a kind of a geopolitical level, why it's important for us to stop buying foreign oil because so much of that money goes to the funding of um, non-democratic non-democratic activities. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, that's yeah. A, he was he was a little bit more straightforward. He, he said he, he said we're we're funding the war against us is what he said. Yes. Yeah, we're funding both sides of the war, you know. Yes. And uh, which to protect the oil and, and yeah, exactly. And by buying the oil, we we fund both sides. And well, also, my only my only objection to the the flex fuel or biofuels is is that we're already seeing the impact of of our of increased usage of them, which is that food prices have uh, moved up about uh, I think it's as much as fourteen percent. Um, so uh, the, the problem is this: when we turn to using the food to, to fuel our cars in the in the form of biofuel, is that uh, we're starting to struggle now with uh, we're starting to reduce you know free free food sent abroad, um, and in terms of food that we buy here, since those prices for those core things that go into a lot of our food um, is now being switched over to being made for fuel, we're, we're starting to pay price higher prices on bread and everything else. Yeah, well, that is that is a major concern. One one of the uh, of course one of the um Possible solutions to that is <clears throat> you make um, you make ethanol just out of the waste products rather than out of food products, right. and, and you're uh, you're well ahead of the game. You also you can make it out of cellulose, and uh, then then you don't have that problem. Um, Did also you talk with, about the air car? Uh, I'm sorry. 
did he talk about the air car? Uh, no, the air, the air car. pressure car where you like. Yes, yes. Well, actually, no, he tell didn't. us more. Oh, I'm, I mean, since we're since we're on a science and cool concept. Yeah, 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 please. Uh, no, you got us. You had us at air car, man. You couldn't go. The air car is is this uh, car that's made in in France, and it's an absolutely fantastically intriguing idea where they take pressurized air. They take like a giant scuba tank, basically, and hook that up to a piston. So the engine is, is of a familiar design. It uses pistons, you know, driven by air pressure. And so the, the fuel container is actually a giant scuba tank, basically. It's pressurized to two or three times nor, higher than a, a scuba tank, but it's all technologies that we have that are fairly simple and very mechanically oriented today. And what you do is you basically fill up your air tanks in a car with pressurized air, and you use that to drive around. And it sounds like a car. It uses a lot of the same, you know, parts, moving parts of the car. And it's very easy to sort of adapt existing cars to using air, with the exception of the fact that our cars are really heavy now. The air car is, is typically uh, more, looks more European. It's very light construction. But uh, the efficiencies they're getting out of this thing look extremely promising. And what you do then is you... Uh, are able to switch over to the, the transition to using air cars would, would be more intriguing than the ones I'm currently seeing now. Well, what, what's interesting about that is, um, and now that you mentioned it, I, I think not only have I read something about this, I think we blogged about this maybe about a year, year and a half ago. I think there's a company in India that's looking to um, to distribute these there. The, the, yeah. the notion has really caught on in India for for some of these reasons. I mean, it's it's a much lighter vehicle, and you, you can run it for you can run it for really cheap. And I guess if the the only power source is the air tank, if you're just pumping air into the air tank, then essentially you're running the. It's like an electric car. It's like a battery. You're running the car right. off the grid at that point. Right? Well, what's so, what's even better about the this this car is that a you don't have to choose what your uh, power charging power source is. If you want to build a generator that runs off of fuel that pressurizes it, you can stick with fuel for right now. But if you wanted to run a nuclear power plant that had electricity that runs an air compressor in your house, you know what I mean, you can then choose that method. Or you could you know, run it off of renewable resources. So the car becomes independent of whatever primary fuel source your neighborhood, your country decides to standardize on. And I think that's important because you know, fuel cell cars or, you know, flex fuel cars or whatever like that, I think could, you know, trying to make a decision on one of those could be problematic, but the air car kind of removes itself from the problem of deciding what do we use for, for our primary power source. You know, one important thing that I know that they have thought about is um, how you make sure that in times of failure, you know, in an accident or something, that right. it doesn't turn into shrapnel, you know. Exactly. Um, and and they, they say that they've built it to where, it, you know, if it fails along a seam mm -hmm. so that uh, it just basically it peels open rather than exploding. Explodes. Yeah, I mean, and that's similar to scuba tanks today. Yeah. And uh, well, I, they make scuba tanks that way where they fail gracefully. Rather than exploding, I, like I may a be bomb. mistaken on that. I may be mistaken on that, but I th I think that they're made to fail gracefully now. Okay. Or well, that, that makes sense. Coming up. <laughs> well, and plus, I mean, maybe I don't follow this as closely as I should, but when was the last time you heard of a scuba tank exploding? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it, it, yeah, it's not it's not it's not frequent. And the other thing is, of course, you know, we you know we already use a high failure automobile. Yeah. 
<laughs> right, right. I mean, we got <laughs> gasoline too. Crying out loud, yeah. Yeah. When was the last time you saw a car in combustible fuels in the back of our car? <laughs> yeah, you've seen that one. I mean, right? It's true. As long as you put your uh, tank in the center of your car, you've got a pretty good bet that uh, it's not going to explode upon impact. Yeah, you got a, and you got a good chance it won't happen at all. And then if it's engineered to, you know, to fail gracefully, then maybe nobody get hurt, even if it does yeah. explode. Yeah. I think your ears I think, will be ringing. I bet. <laughs> I like I like any idea that uh, that that opens up uh, choices. And one of the reasons I like Zubrin's book so much is that the the flex fuel vehicle really gives you a lot more options than 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 we currently have. Yeah, it sounds like air car. That 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 really opens it up because suddenly you can uh, you can run the whole thing off the grid. One thing I did want to come back to was that uh, the, the the notion that um, that the biofuels call a cause a food shortage. I would I would recommend that you read the book. Um, because Zubrin spends quite a bit of time on that, and in fact ar- argues that um, we, we we have the agricultural resource, uh, the agricultural capacity on this planet to feed ourselves and to produce a, a, an enormous amount of liquid fuel. Um, it partly has to do with the politics of we don't support um, developing countries' agricultural uh, economies. We. Right. In fact, we, we try to hold those down because we, we want to support them food, it. which kind of causes the opposite problem. Yeah. So, so they're discouraged from from growing food. And then the other thing is, when we try to implement something like ethanol in this country, um, it becomes a big political boondoggle, and and we, we're making it out of corn, which is probably not the best thing to be making it out of anyway. We should, if we're going to grow corn, switchblade grass is the preferred option. Well, that's a, that's one excellent option. Um, you know, uh, our family is actually looking at doing that. We um, we just need to have the infrastructure in place locally, and that's being brought in. Oh wow! We have a couple hundred acres uh, just north of us, just north of Shreveport here, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna be planting it just as soon as uh, uh, as the infrastructure is brought in. And, that, and, and that's gonna be used for making ethanol. That's exactly what it's gonna be used for. There's no other uh, no other use for it really. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's, there's no possibility of, uh, of competing. Yeah, some of these other crops he talks about would be much closer to the success that uh, Brazil is having with sugarcane, if we were to use mm-hmm. sugar beets or fodder beets or sorghum or some right. of those things, or to import them from, from uh, uh, other countries where, uh, where they need to be building up their agricultural infrastructure. Anyway, but the idea of just using something like that, that people weren't going to eat anyhow, you know, I mean, <laughs> that, that, that seems like a pretty straightforward uh, way to go about doing it. So so when are you guys going to be in this business? Well, it, it, it looks like uh, that the infrastructure, in other words, the local guys that will gather up from the farmers, you know, the switchgrass, uh, that's uh, scheduled to be brought in the next couple of years. And so as soon as they open up, we're going to plant. And so, All right. And, uh, it's, well, last week it's your brother and his solar power. Now yeah. this week, somebody else in your family. <laughs> the show is really it's just... It's my dad this time. It's becoming the Gordon family... Uh, it's not yeah. something you blog about, it's a passion. Yeah, that's right. We we're, live it. We're, we're all going to be working for Stephen. <laughs> oh, man. That's a strange feeling. <laughs> well, get used to it, Phil. Yeah, well, uh, no, I look forward to it. Well, you're fired. <laughs> I absolutely look forward to it. I, I, for one, welcome our Gordon. Uh, overlords or whatever. Yeah, our, our, our new Gordon overlords. <laughs> oh, man. Um well, anyway, the, the ideas from Zubrin, uh, of course, uh, Glenn Reynolds had been interested in it before we did our show. I don't think it would be fair to say that we turned Glenn on to Zubrin. But anyway, we, you know, those well, ideas. Well, what would be fair to say was uh, he linked us 
right? He, right. he, he linked the fact that we had interviewed Zubrin, and then a couple weeks later he interviewed Zubrin. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, and, then the McCain, and then well, the McCain... Well, to be fair, I, I learned about the air car from Glenn. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. And I think, I, I think we did, too. Yeah, yeah so, no uh, you know, yeah. Uh, we feed off of Glenn, and he feeds off of us every now and then. So. <laughs> well, yeah. So <laughs> That'd be about it. Let's not even talk we, ratio. Go ahead. Yeah, we, we don't want to go there, but... Yeah. Anyway, so, anyway, Glenn, Glenn uh, interviews him for his show. Then the McCain campaign contacts Glenn right after that show, same day. And says, "Great show, of course. You know, Senator McCain is all about this sort of these sort of ideas." And then last night's debate, I heard Zubrin's words repeated back almost verbatim from Senator. Really? Yes. That's I mean, intriguing. And and then and then of course, every one of the Republican nominees jumped on those ideas and said, "Yeah, we're all about that too." And so uh, it's it's fascinating that you know, energy those ideas from the. Uh, from, from that book uh, are, are, are being watching, heard loud and clear on the national stage. Live mimetic transmission. You saw it here first. <laughs> That's yeah, right. We're, we're on the cutting edge. I don't can know we just we... draw the line, okay, for everyone listening? Okay. <laughs> Zubrin was on our show. Then Glenn interviewed him. Okay. Then the McCain campaign picks it up. Now all the candidates are talking about this stuff. Okay. So, anyway, I've got an audio excerpt. changed expert. history, I, I guess. Is what <laughs> I've got an audio excerpt of the uh, of. of of Senator McCain's response last night. It fascinated me so much. I said, well, I've got to get this for the show. And so okay. I, hope, I hope you guys... Uh... Let's have a listen. All right. Let me move on. People in this state and everywhere are worried about gas prices. When 2007 began, oil was $61 a barrel. It was 100 last week. We haven't even begun to see the demand that India and China is going to put on the world's oil markets. Don't you have to, in the end, level with people? The gas prices are at this level to stay, and if anything, they're going to go higher. And isn't not to do so intellectual dishonesty? At, the, uh, at that price of oil, we're going to send $400 billion a year overseas to oil-producing countries. Some of that money will end up in the hands of terrorist organizations. It will certainly end up in the hands of dictators who do not have our interests or our values and sometimes want to harm America. We have to reduce the dependence on foreign oil, and we have to eliminate, we have to address the issue of greenhouse gas emissions. I think it's a nexus of two critical issues facing this country. Alternate energy, nuclear power, wind, solar, tide, hybrids. We have to unleash the technology of America, and we must re reduce and eventually eliminate this dependency on foreign oil because it has become a national security issue, and we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because I believe there's enough evidence that we are going to damage this planet beyond repair unless we begin to address that issue. All right. Okay. John That's, McCain. Wow. Yeah, well, and wow. uh, so, so it was basically, I mean, it was Zubrin's ideas plus throw a little concern for the, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and all that, throw that in too. But um, yeah. oh, if you read the book, though, Zubrin is concerned about that as well. He, uh, okay. Well, I haven't gotten to that, that chapter yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I've, I have started the book. Well, what's interesting uh, to me about that is it seems that uh, he picks up on the whole we don't want to fund the other side of the war on terror anymore, but he, he's, he's not terribly specific about what we're going to do. Right. That, I, I, well, I, you know, you never want, if you're a politician, you don't want to nail yourself down to to you know, specifically. Actually saying anything. 
<laughs> I don't, and I don't think that's necessarily shifty as much as it is just uh, probably wise. But I mean, because you don't know where the you know where it's going to be exactly. But you know, he he mentioned nuclear in there, and uh, that's true. And uh, all the uh, and it seemed like every person on the stage then started talking about you know we haven't had a nuclear power plant in this country in 30 years uh, licensed a new a, a new nuclear power plant. And uh, that, we got to change that, and that's so. Uh, I, I think that that's uh, uh, I, I see that as a way that we're going to be going uh, to buy something. Do you have any thoughts on that as far as uh, how we're going to power the future? You know, um, I, I really was uh, intrigued. I, I'm, I'm sort of uh, jokingly uh, referred to myself as a, a sort of uh, environmentalist loving nuclear. Uh, Person, you know, me too. I, I, me too. I really think that it, it, it's intriguing. I, unfortunately, Carl Schrader uh, once uh, dropped a line on me that uh, pointed out the uh, the problems with uh, getting enough nuclear fuel to sort of ramp everyone up onto it. Um, there is there is sort of a finite amount of material that can be uh, dug out that's that's nuclear, um, and seemed to indicate to me that uh, you know our, our, we need to worry about uh, fusion. Or I, I think that it's fusion that hasn't been, you know, quite gotten yet. Uh, yeah. it still seems to be um, a much better, a much better option. But I still seem to think that, uh, you know, I still fission may get us to fusion, like uh, so many other technologies have, right. have bridged the gap to the newer and better thing. Yeah. I think it's it's a better investment. I mean, uh, right now coal is putting, you know, people are worried about radioactivity, but uh, we're getting, you know, more radio, more radioactivity pumped into our atmosphere thanks to coal because it also has radioactive properties when it's processed, you know. So, uh, you know, I'd rather safe nuclear power, you know, done than uh, dumping what we're dumping into our atmosphere right now. And uh, other than that, I'm very intrigued with the fact that I think it's the, uh, I think it's the U.S. Navy, Army, the U.S. Army recently just did a big study about uh, solar mirrors, and they're investing an enormous amount of money to get some solar, like, you know, you take a solar mirror and you focus it towards a certain spot on the ground and, and you sort of gather all the sun's rays and send, like, a super, you know, beam of light down to a collecting station to run it. And they, I've talked to a small island out in the Pacific, I forget which one it is, about running, you know, running a whole island using a, a mirror in space just as a test bit because the Army would, like, mobile power more than anything and they think the idea of having mirrors in space that they could redirect and point to a new navy or army base somewhere that's just moved there would be terrifically useful sounds like a good weapon too <laughs> there you go. I, yeah you know don't look up <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, why would they why would the navy have been interested in the first place yeah sounds a little like uh, what i used to do with ants with my magnifying glass it does it really is pretty much the same principle but it's interesting that you know uh, it's always it's always the counterintuitive organizations that suddenly might give us a big huge bump in in this you know alternative technology you know so, you know for some reason it amuses me that the army is one of the largest spenders in in green technology research you know because uh, they're quite aware of the fact that oil is becoming harder and harder to obtain, and that affects the army. Oh yeah. You know, and they want to figure out ways to become less dependent on it, so that if you know stuff really does hit the fan, they're still effective. <laughs> in, in fact, I just saw a story last week about um, uh, the Air Force running a its first jet ever that runs off coal. I mean, it's not coal directly, but they've taken right. coal and they've refined it into a, a, a fuel that'll that'll power that and. 
a couple weeks ago we, we were talk, had a thread going about a sane energy policy, and somebody had written in about really interesting Department of Defense stuff that's going on with uh, hydrogen fuel cells. We had kind of blown off hydrogen as a possibility because of some of the basic mathematics involved, but uh, apparently the Department of Defense has not written that off, and, and they've, <laughs> they've got some interesting stuff going on there. Yeah, They, they, they really do some blue, blue sky stuff, you know, that uh, yeah, yeah. when everyone else is thinking, uh, you know, that, it'll be 100 years before that's of any use to us, they're the guys that are going, well, we better get to work on it then. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's exactly. just right around the corner. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, I, I, it, it is fascinating. It's those guys. Uh, we, I, we got a commenter that said that the uh, the space mirror sounds like real genius. The uh, if y'all remember that movie, oh, with the popcorn. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I, I, for I that. guess I saw that. Oh, that? you didn't see that? Val Kilmer. He was it looked like he was about five years old. It was. The, <laughs> I've, I've never seen real genius. Oh man. Yeah. Okay. Well, go get it. You okay. Gotta, I'm missing a reference. Yeah, oh, I hate a, that. Ugh. <laughs> that's that's a major cultural turning point there in my life. Well, there it is. See, I did plan to do this. Well, it's 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 great though that um that that you see so many different things going on in solar because I know Stephen, we had another. We've been talking about a lot of different stuff going on with solar. Solar is just going nuts lately. It, it seems like yeah, whole... and, and for a long time it wasn't. You know. Yeah. It, it was not. The, it was not the dominant sort of thing for a long time. Well, oil was cheap, right? I mean, maybe exactly. that exactly. Yeah, that's what's driving all of this, I suppose. Well, there's this new thing, and Phil, you're going to love this because uh, it involves nanotech, but what they're doing is they're making, like, uh, you know, uh, molecule-size solar collectors, basically, and and what they're doing, it it has nothing to do with, it's not, they're they're starting completely from scratch. This is not photovoltaic at all, okay? It's It's an antenna that picks up the infrared, Okay, the same way like an antenna for a TV set or your cell phone does, and and in order for this to work, they had to make the antenna incredibly small, and so it was not possible until they were able to start, you know, basically writing these things as small as it was, and so they they make these tiny spirals, and you'll like it for that reason too, Phil, um, that that turn uh, that are are these antennas. And uh, apparently they can collect about 80% of the energy from the sun. And even after sunset, the earth is radiating heat, and it gets that too. And so, uh, and so it works, you know. So it's, it's just grabbing the heat. It's not yeah. the sunlight itself. It's, getting that, it's receiving that it, heat. It's the infrared spectrum that is what, what, what it's getting. And, uh, and, and it's cheap. They say, you know, uh, once you get geared up with this, they could, you know, print it out like, you know, pennies a yard. Now, is this technology was based on some kind of biotech into nanotech? These no. viral shapes were originally algae strands or something like that. Is that? No, I, I didn't get that from the story I'm reading here. This and this is totally different from the, you know, the, this great solar development that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. I right. mean, and that was that was photovoltaic, and that was uh, based on the fact that they weren't using as much silicon. Uh, is 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 what they had to, and and so they could, you know, they were, you know, were able to slice the price of a photovoltaic uh, solar to make it cheap enough to where it's competitive with the grid. This is not like that at all. This is a totally different route to get energy from the sun, and um, and that's it's pretty exciting. They, they say it collects energy great. Our problem now is making turning that into electricity because apparently the uh, I don't know the the amount. Uh, 
the it's just not it's just not doing it right. You know, I mean, it's not it, it, the the vibrations or the frequency is all wrong for electricity for some reason. But they they're they're working now to figure out a way to convert it into electricity. So wow, well, exciting development. The, the thing is, you talk about fusion. Um, there's one argument that says we don't have to develop fusion because we got this great huge fusion reactor just a, a mere 93 million miles away. All we have to do is just grab all that fusion energy. And I have this feeling that um, we're going to see a lot more with solar. It seems like, especially with developments in nanotechnology, that uh, there's just going to be a lot of different ways into that uh, into solving that problem that are going to create some interesting developments. I just think like we're going to see a lot of a lot of things. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, uh, and I don't mean to, uh, that that sounded like I was being catty. I mean, I'm just saying that we got there's just so many opportunities. Like you said, I, the, the future is just wide open, Phil. As far as you know, we could have flex fuel cars, and then we could have biodiesel cars, and we could have air cars, and we could have you know uh, full EVs, and we can have hybrid. You know, you name it. I think we're going to see it, and uh, because we're going to try everything. Um, and just to see and, and let it shake out and see what's the, see which, which is the best way to go. Well, if we get to try them, now you know we've got one uh, one commenter uh, saying that um, the oil companies will never let us do this. So. Well, I, I, I think that's uh, with respect to our commenter. I think that's just a little cynical, and I, I think it's uh, um, I think that the oil company doesn't have that kind of power. I mean, if Particularly when uh, when we start seeing you know, when we start paying six and seven dollars a gallon at the pump, um, you know we're there, there'll be there'll be a market then for something better. Yeah, I think. Well, when, you know when the, the oil the oil companies, you know, as much as they've been saying that, you know, as much as you can say cynically that they may have been doing that all along, at some point you do reach the point where the oil starts getting more and more expensive, and they're the ones who bought all those different, you know, uh, patents to try and stop, you know, those alternate technologies, and they're the ones who hold them, which means that uh, during the switchover, they also end up uh, coming out ahead anyway, which is not surprising that we see a number of oil companies renaming their name, renaming themselves to energy companies, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm thinking of BP Oil, which which now is sort of like uh, got this vague energy symbol on its, on its logo instead of oil. That's true. I mean, when when they really smell some money in it for them, you know, that's when some of this stuff will really start to happen. I think um, that, or, or or they'll get out of the way, right? It's it's a lot like when you talk about changes to um, cars, and you say, well, Detroit's going to be a problem, or the the, the car makers are going to be a problem. Well, it's like, yeah, they're you know they're they're slow to they're they're slow to change what they're doing because you know they've got a lot of infrastructure supporting what they're currently doing, but. You know they will evolve into other kinds of business models when when they sense that they're gonna that, that they're gonna make the money doing it. That's ultimately that's what's gonna push them into those kinds of things. It, it only well, makes I'm, sense. I'm, I'm I'm on for a sort of academic in that I'm a I'm a diehard sort of capitalist in that I believe that there's nothing particularly wrong with what we're seeing happen right now, which is that if the oil companies or car companies continue to not innovate, then smaller, nimbler companies that have better options will then be able to take advantage of that to make lots of money and put them out of business. There you go. And we're already seeing little bits of that. You know, the, you know, I'm sitting in a Toyota right now because my cell phone was about to die, so I just went and plugged that in. And uh, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to note that Toyota just became the number one uh, car manufacturer and surpassed Ford and. And GM, and I notice one thing that Toyota continues to do, although it's not a small, nimble company. You know, pardon me, but it is, you know, it's one of the leaders in terms of alternate technology cars. You know, it's well known for the Prius. Uh, 
And while I don't think the Prius is the answer, I think it sort of is a good faith demonstration or advertising on the part of Toyota that, hey, they're willing to go down this direction. And I think it's not surprising that they tend to get a lot of customer switchovers as a result as people look at the larger and larger gas guzzling vehicles still being produced by, you know, a sort of uh, Detroit that doesn't seem to think it has to worry about those things. Absolutely. Well, and, and you know, to just just to bounce off one, one thought there, it, it's not historically that long ago that they were a small, nimble company, right? Yeah. I think they right. might have that in their in their genetics a little more than uh, than than say the Detroit or the European car makers do. Then. Uh, yeah, there's a great book called The Toyota Way, which uh, I think it's uh, written by uh, a guy named Licken or or something along those lines, and uh, it's just called The Toyota Way, and it's all about their company genetics. And it's uh, the company DNA, what drives them. And it's it's incredibly fascinating book to read because they basically are a large company that behaves like a very small and nimble one. Yeah, and and, and you know a, a company, a large company, doesn't have to act like a monolith, but often it it, it becomes very easy to do so. Mm-hmm. It it, it I, you know it takes some effort on the part of a large company to remain nimble and and be open to ideas. You know, instead of doing just the same thing until right, it right. stops working. You well, know. and that's the beauty of, of not, you know, being a top-down economy or system in that, you know, we will, you know, as as these as these possible solutions develop, you know, our our feet and, and money will reward the, the best solution, and all of them will compete at once. It's kind of the beauty of the system. That's right. So, yeah, it's wide open. We'll, we'll try it all probably, won't we? I think, yeah, we will try it all before. You know, don't forget that, you know, before the internal combustion engine achieved the efficiencies necessary to make it a workable solution that uh, we did try it all at the beginning of the century, the 1900s. You know, in the 1900s, there were coal, steam-powered, electric, and internal combustion engines all used in car designs until finally the internal combustion gasoline engine began to edge them out. Right. That's That's exactly right. And, in fact, you know, one of the things that was tried back then, Compressed air. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, nice, nice way to bring it back around. What goes around right. comes around, huh? That's, yeah, yeah. That's that's really interesting. So that that might it'd be interesting if that became the dominant model after all. After uh, after mm-hmm. what a century or more of uh, of internal combustion engine. All right. Well, Stephen, I think we're probably a little bit past our time. Yeah, we are. We are. But I, I just want to paint one picture here I, because um, he. he he said it so uh, so glancingly, but uh, I want everyone to understand that, that our guest, Tobias, um, left the comfort of his room, went outside into a car to plug his phone in so he could stay on the show with us. <laughs> I really like you guys. Did I, get, did I get that right? Is that what you is that what you're telling us you did? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I thought we'd be on for an hour, and that was solid, and and, uh, and my phone started to beep, so I had to quickly uh, cover the mouthpiece so you guys couldn't hear me uh, moving about and uh, uh, get out here and, and plug it into the car so I could continue to talk. So I wasn't is... sure how much longer we'd be. Well, you're a great guest anyway, but I mean, he's such a great guest. Yeah, he's, uh, he, this is one of the reasons we like having you on the show so well, Tobias. You're a good sport, man. <laughs> you, you do whatever it didn't takes to be a good guest, and that's great. What a trooper. Absolutely. He really is. Well, we we really appreciate you being on the program. We enjoyed, as always, talking with you. Thanks for Oh, thank uh, you. It's, it's a 
Total pleasure to be here. Total pleasure. Uh, I get, we need to we need to pump this one more time. Uh, Tobias, you uh, you're, uh, you've got online uh, Crystal Rain, uh, the first third of the book. Is that right? Yeah, I always post the first third of the novel that's currently out. For and you're going to get to do this with the book you just turned in as well, right? You slime mongoose. Uh, so far, no one's told me no. So the you know I'm assuming that we will also you know what happens is about a month before, so I start to post a chapter a day so. leading up to the event of the launch of the book. So if you want to get a taste of what Tobias writes, you've got no excuse. You can go <laughs> Take a taste. Follow the links. We're providing them on speculus.com. Or just go straight to Amazon and buy the books, by golly. You don't uh, you, you know, keep this man in cell phone batteries. Let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's keep it going here. Huh? Yeah. Well, again, Tobias, thank you. And uh, we got some music tonight. Uh, Christopher B. Crowder, uh, it's, uh, his, 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 uh, his song is Smell the Coffee. Smell the coffee. All right. Well, as we go to sleep, we will be smelling the coffee. Uh, thanks, Stephen, and uh, thank you again, Tobias. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, thanks for all those listening. We look forward to being with you again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Good night.
wow. You're actually wearing your hair down tonight. Yeah, because I finally decided that I love my hair. I figured out the solution for my morning frizz, midday poof, and even next day bedhead. It's Frizz E Secret Weapon Touch-Up Cream by John Frieda. Well, you and your hair look flawless. Flawless and touchable. Feel. Oh. See? It's soft. Smooth ends, no flyaways, shiny. Well, I clearly need to get some because your hair looks amazing. Frizz E Secret Weapon, only from John Frieda.